morning. You will probably guess <clears throat> by my voice that I am recovering from laryngitis. So, as a preacher, that's hard. <laughs> uh, when, when your voice is one of your main tools in your profession, as, as many of you probably know, when um, in certain, certain ones of your jobs, if a tool breaks down in your job, uh, that can be a, a, a difficult thing. So my tool, one of my main tools, broke down this past week. So I was praying that it would uh, be repaired before this morning. So um, most of my voice has come back. You can hear that it's kind of struggling still. So if at any point I squeak and that comes through the sound system, I apologize. Um, but as we come to this text this morning, would you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 11? We're going to look at Jesus as our king the coming king who did come into the world to save his people. Around 620 B.C., there was a lawyer or a lawmaker by the name of Draco in Athens, Greece. Draco uh, set up very strict written laws in the Greek system of law, and it had very hard penalties. Many what we would call minor offenses, actually the penalty was death. And so it was a very strict law, and he was the first to take what was an oral traditional law and put it down into written law, something that made it harder to change and easier to enforce. And actually it was common with oral law for the, the, the more influential people of the society, those who were wealthy, those who had means, to kind of influence the law, the oral law, in a way. And so Draco's law actually really defended and protected the poor of the society more so than the wealthy. It didn't allow the wealthy to just go in and say what they thought the law should be. And so Draco, in many ways, was a, uh, a helpful change and a helpful influence when it came to law. Now, many of you probably have heard of the term draconian law, or that's so draconian. And we usually think of that in negative terms, which, I mean, I will admit, his laws were very strict and his penalties were very harsh. But his intention in all of that was actually to protect the poor from being taken advantage of, from being abused. Well, at one point, he was giving a speech around 620 to 600 B.C., and his death became one of the deaths that was... Um, kind of listed as one of the more embarrassing deaths of history. He gave a speech, and at the end of that speech, all of his fans and supporters, in a, in a traditional way, began throwing their hats and their garments, their cloaks, at Draco as a way of saying, we love you and we want to give to you the shirts off of our back, the cloaks off of our back. And they threw so many cloaks on him that he literally suffocated and died. And so that's how Draco died, by the love of his own fan club um, and death by cloaks. Now this morning we're going to come to a text of another lawmaker, God himself in the flesh, who's coming in as king, and his adoring fans are also throwing their cloaks down as a sign of respect and as, as an acknowledgement that they love this person. And they are crying out to this man, Hosanna. But what we will see about this king, this coming king, is that those who love him and shower their cloaks on him, not by accident, but by intentionality, 
the very next week we'll also send this man to death by shouting crucify. And so what we're going to see this morning from our text is how does this all play out? And, and what we'll see over the next few weeks as we look this week at Palm Sunday and the entrance was often called the triumphal entry of Jesus as king. Next week for Easter, we're actually going to be looking at the cross, the crucifixion narrative of Jesus. And we're going to mention the resurrection, don't worry. And then the week after that is actually we're going to have a guest preacher preach on Mark 16, the resurrection passage. So for the next three weeks, we're going to really meditate on Jesus' final week on earth before he died and what that means for us. And so if you have your Bible, have that open. What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is king of all nations with all authority, and we can trust his salvation. So the first thing I want you to see, if you have your worship guide, you have an outline on the back of that. I actually want to modify that a little bit if you're taking notes. First point is actually just going to be Jesus is king. And then the second point is that Jesus is king of all nations. And under that heading is when we're going to talk about his authority. So if you're taking notes, you can modify that outline a little bit. So two points, Jesus is king, and then Jesus is king of all nations. We see Jesus' kingship, or his royal entry, by riding in on this donkey. Luke 9, 59 actually says, uh, 9, 51, sorry, says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is Jesus, for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is, a, this is a common thing. In Jesus' life, there's this kind of turning point that Jesus makes with his life on ministry. And what we often call this, what we often say many times when we're having this discussion in different groups uh, that are familiar with these narratives, is that when Jesus turned toward Jerusalem, he was really resolving that this was, these were the final moments. That this was, if you've, if you've been paying attention to this whole series... This was Jesus' purpose on earth. He came to die. He was born in order that he might give his life. He came to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So now Jesus realizes that the time has truly come. So what does he do? He turns his face towards Jerusalem. Why? Well, because that was where, that's where atonement was being made. That's where the sacrifices of the animals were being made annually and even daily and weekly. And now around this time, around the time of Passover, the, the, the sacrifices were being prepared. The offerings were being prepared to be split open and laid out on an altar for the remission of sins. And Jesus is going towards Jerusalem knowing that he is the one who would suffer and die once for all for the sins of many. That by the blood of bulls and goats... Those things could never truly satisfy for sin, but Jesus Christ himself would offer himself on the cross. And so Jesus is turning toward Jerusalem. He knows where he's going. Again, if you've been paying attention to our readings in Mark, we haven't been able to focus on every single point that we've read, but three times already Jesus has predicted his suffering and death. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows exactly where he's going, and he knows what's before him. So what does he do? He sends his disciples to get a donkey. What? Jesus, why, why a donkey? Why, 
Why a colt, the foal of a donkey? Why a donkey that has never even been ridden? What is this all about? Go get me a donkey. And if they ask you what it's for, tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, donkeys were actually a very um, prized possession for households back then. It was an important economic feature in common households. It's how they, they, ha they worked their fields. It's how they were able to provide for themselves. It's how they carried things to the market if they were going to sell items, things like that. So donkeys were valuable, especially for a common household. And so Jesus is really asking whoever this is to sacrifice something for him. And they do it willingly. There's probably a little bit of supernatural influence there. We don't get a whole lot of narrative there, but all they had to say was the Lord has need of it, and they were willing to give it up. Let me just put a pause there. Is there anything in your life that if the Lord had need of it or if the Lord asked you to give it up, that you would really struggle? You would really have a hard time doing that. Whether it's a, a pattern of sin, whether it's an item, an idol, something like that, if Jesus just said to you, it's time for you to give that up. What's that one thing that you don't want them to say that about? Most likely that's the one thing that you need to reevaluate if it should even be in your life or how much it should be in your life. Okay, time in. So now we come back to this passage and, and really what I want you to see is the, sim, the symbolic nature of this donkey that Jesus is riding in on. So <clears throat> again, let's ask, why a donkey? Well, if you were to go back to 1 Kings chapter 1, you can write that in the margins of your notes, in your journal, whatever. 1 Kings chapter 1, there's actually a story that plays out there about David, who is king. And, and the people are trying to figure out who's going to follow David's reign, who's going to be the true king. And there's this kind of debate going on about who that's going to be. And so David actually goes, and he gets his royal mule, and he puts Solomon on the royal mule, and he parades him through the town, through Jerusalem, the city. And he's saying, this is the next king. This is my, the one who will follow me. This is my successor. And so this donkey was symbolic of, uh, it, it was a royal claim to the throne. And so that's one thing that Jesus is doing there. He's, he's riding in on a donkey as if to say, I am your true king. I am the Messiah that was promised. I am the one who was to come. And we know that from Zechariah chapter 9. This was actually prophesied. Zechariah 9, starting in verse 9, says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here. He's saying that prophecy about the coming king, about the Messiah, that's about me. I'm coming in to claim my throne and my authority. Now, another thing about kings and riding on these hooved creatures is that if a king was going off to war, as if to say, I'm going off to battle, we're at war, usually they would adorn a war horse and they would go out of the city as if, to say, it's time, you know, cheer us on, pray for us, here we go, off to war. Well, Jesus isn't riding on a war horse, he's riding on a donkey. Because a donkey or a mule in that society was a sign of peace. Usually, the king would ride on the donkey either in a time of peace 
or follow, following a great war or battle that they had won. And so that's the other thing that Jesus is kind of subtly saying in here is, I come in peace, but also he's saying, I've basically won this battle already. There's only one more thing left for me to do, and that's go to the cross. But I've already won the victory. This is all planned out before the foundations of the world. I am going to my death, but no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. Jesus is declaring peace and victory over these people. And so what is their response? Well, they're taking all these hints and all these pieces of information and the prophecy and Jesus riding in on a donkey. And what's their response? They're saying, maybe this is the true Messiah. Maybe this is the real one that we've seen his miracles, we've seen his power, we've seen his authority, we've seen everything he can do. Maybe he truly will come save us and deliver us from our, these evil hands, the, the evil authorities and power that are over us, the evil dominion. Hosanna! Maybe he's really coming. Hosanna to the king. Now what does Hosanna mean? Well, it actually comes from two Hebrew words. <coughs> oh boy, I shouldn't have done that comes from two Hebrew words, asa and na. And those two words mean, asa means save or deliver or help. And na, I'm sorry, <coughs> give me a second. I really shouldn't have done that. Um, na means please. Or we pray. And so they're declaring, Hosanna, please save us. Please deliver us. Please help us. If you're really the Messiah, if you're really the king, Hosanna. Now what they didn't realize, and many will say, this is the same crowd that a week later would cry, crucify. Crucify him. And what they didn't realize in that moment, when they cried, Hosanna, how similar that phrase is to crucify him. Because the only way this Savior and King would save his people was by going to the cross. You see, when they cried crucify him, they were crying save us. They didn't realize it. When they said send Jesus to the cross in what they intended for evil, God meant for good. This man, this king, this Messiah who has come, this perfect one who is all perfect righteousness, save us. And Jesus said, I am going to save you. Not the way you think I should, but the way I must, which is by offering my life on the cross for your sins. And so we can give the, we can give the crowd a hard time sometimes. And Jesus even said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But when they cried, Hosanna, save us, they were crying, crucify him. And when they cried, crucify him, they were crying, Hosanna, save us. Because Jesus had to die so that we might live. <clears throat> so that's the first thing, that Jesus is king. <coughs> the second thing we see here is that Jesus is king of all nations. Flip over. Uh, to this passage on the temple when Jesus enters the temple. <clears throat> Starting at verse 15. 
It says they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Now remember, this is the time of Passover. This is the time when they would offer sacrifices on the altar. All the people would bring in their animals to, to, to sacrifice. And Jesus finds these people selling and, and doing business in the temple. And he starts driving them out. Now, if you were to go back, back just a second to verse 11, look at verse 11. It says, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus had already been in. He came into the temple the night before, and he sees everything laid out. What did he see? He saw all the booths. He saw the market laid out in the court of the Gentiles, the place where the Gentiles were invited to come and worship. You see all the, the tables and the money changers set up, laid out, and all of the animals to sell. What was going on? Jesus says, says this in verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And right before that, it actually said that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, a little bit, a little bit of cultural background is needed here to understand all that's going on. The first is that it mentions the money changers. And you think of money changing, if you just think of um, things like exchanging currency, that's what's going on. In other words, they've got a table set up so that those who come in with foreign money, who would that be? The Gentiles. Those who came in with foreign money, those from outside of our nation, those from outside, from foreign lands, those who come in with this foreign money have to change their money out. And so they're, they're changing the money out. The other word that we need to pick up on here is the pigeons. And what's so significant about pigeons? Well, from Old Testament law, you were required to bring a bull or a lamb or a goat to sacrifice. But if you couldn't afford those things, you brought two young pigeons. So who are they selling these things to? They're selling to the poor. The poor Gentiles. So you've got these Jewish greedy people taking advantage of the poor outcast of society in order to make a buck. And they're doing it in the court of the Gentiles where these people are invited to come and pray and worship. They're completely contradicting Jesus' heart for the poor, for the oppressed, and for all people of all nations and ethnicities. That word for nations or Gentiles comes from the Greek word ethne, where we get our word ethnicity. And Jesus is making a point. My house will be a house for all people from all economic statuses, all races, all societies, all nations. You're not going to mess that up with your greed or your selfishness or your way of doing church. This is a house of prayer for all nations. Do you see that? So Jesus is really making a strong point here. 
You know, um, if you've ever seen or had a friend or been yourself to Rome, there's one place that everybody says you must go to visit in Rome, and that is St. Peter's Basilica. It's, it's the head of the Catholic Church. It's the central place of the Roman Catholic Church. And right there, St. Peter's Basilica, it's this majestic, huge, ornate place of worship for Roman Catholic people. It's, it's a destination. It's where pilgrims of the Catholic faith will go. It's like the main place that many would want to go, St. Peter's Basilica. Well, a lot of people don't realize St. Peter's Basilica was funded by poor people. During the time right before the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the wall, many of those 95 Theses spoke out against this thing called indulgences. Well, indulgences were ways of making money to fund the construction of St. Peter's Basilica. There was a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel. He went around the towns, and he would go to the poor, and he would tell them they had this, they have this doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church about purgatory. Purgatory is where someone goes to purge themselves of all the remaining sin and evilness before they can go to heaven. Sometimes they might be there for a few weeks or a few months or a few years or several hundred years, but eventually they'll get cleaned off enough to go to heaven. We don't believe that here. It's not in the Bible. But the Catholic Church taught that and believed it, and so Johann Tetzel came up, we think he's the main manufacturer of this, came up with this idea. That idea was, we're going to sell indulgences. And these indulgences, people will pay money into this box. And actually, the box was uh, formed in the shape of a casket. You, you see the drama playing out. You know, the last time they saw a casket was when they buried their loved one, who's now in purgatory, what they think. And so he would say, you put your money in the coffin, in the casket, and you can purchase your loved one's salvation from purgatory, deliverance from purgatory. And they had a rhyme that went along with it. Every time a coin in the coffin rings, another soul from purgatory springs. And so they would play this off. Now, what was going on there? It was spiritual abuse, and it was taking advantage of the poor and the outcasts of society in order to fund their greedy venture. And that's exactly what's going on in Jesus' temple in this day. It's spiritual abuse. It's those leaders of the church society at the time, the sacrificial system, taking advantage of the poor, saying, you must buy these two pigeons in order to sacrifice, in order to be right with God. And Jesus completely overturns their messed up theology. And he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all people, all nations, all ethnicities, all economic statuses, poor and rich, white, black, Hispanic, Jew, Gentile, all people. My house is a place of worship and prayer for all people. Now, the Jews had a problem with this. They didn't like that. So they go to Jesus and they say, what authority do you have to be saying all these things, to be teaching all these things? And Jesus actually turns the question back on them. He says, well, what authority did John the Baptist have, the one that y'all put to death? What authority did he have? And he really puts them in the spot. They say, well, if we, if we say from heaven, then he's probably going to ask, well, why didn't you believe him then? 
But if we say from people, from men, his authority came from men, you know, people just endorsing him and thinking he was this great guy, well, then we have to watch out for the people because they really thought he was a true prophet. So because of their fear of either God or man, because of their fear, they said, we don't know. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus' response, then neither will I tell you what my authority was from. Why did he say that? Well, because basically they already knew. You just don't want to admit it. You know exactly who I am. You've seen what I've done. You've seen my power. You've seen the way I love people. You just don't want to admit who I really am. And so let me wrap all this up. Yep, this is going to be a shorter sermon. You're welcome because of my voice and all that. But let me just try to wrap this up. The first is, do you know Jesus is king? If Jesus, like I said, really came into your life and pointed out some things about your life, whether it's your, your endeavors, your vision for what your life is going to look like, all of your plans, everything, the way you hope things will end up for you, you know, your vision for life, whether it's your involvement in things, your busyness, whatever, whether it's your greed, your, 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 your desire to improve your way of life, whether it's a habitual sin that you keep going back to. Is Jesus really king? Does he have the authority in your life? Is he the Lord that says, I need you to give that up? And are you willing to do that? Because he's king. So is he king in your life? Is he a, does he have the authority in your life to come in and say, that, that part of your life that you keep running back to, that part that drives everything you do, your mixed motivations, all of that, I need you to hand that over. I need you to give it to me. And he's a gracious king who when you come to him in repentance, when you come in, in, in submission, he forgives and he's merciful and he's kind and he's loving. But he's king. He has the authority to do that in your life, to tell you it's time to give that up. And I can help you with that. I have the authority to really help you with this, whether it's your sin, whether it's your greed, whether it's your, your desire for your way of life, I can help you have different goals and different desires. And so Jesus is king. Is he king of your life? But we also see in this passage that Jesus is savior. He is the one who went to the cross for his people to deliver them from sin. Your sin deserves death and punishment and hell forever. And we, we try to cry out, Hosanna, Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, deliver me from this. And Jesus says, yes, I have. I went to the cross for you. I love you enough that I took your sin on the cross. I took the punishment that you deserved. I bore the wrath of the Father on sin because of hell, for you, so that you could live and have life with me forever in heaven. 
Hosanna. Jesus has come to save us. And he did it because we crucified him on the cross. So Jesus is a king. He's a savior. And the last thing as application is because of this, we can pray. We can truly believe that he wants to, to help us and to provide for us and to give us the desires of our hearts. Now, some of those desires are evil, like we talked about. And so Jesus, in other passages, we really have to take this passage in context with other, the other parts of Scripture. Jesus does say, if you pray anything according to my will, it will be granted to you. And in other places, if you pray in my name, it will be granted to you. And in this passage, if you pray with faith, believing you already have what you are praying for, it will be granted to you. Now, we have to take all that in context and say, how how do we apply that? I don't think what Jesus is saying here is, if you pray with enough faith to be healed, you're going to be healed. If you pray with enough faith to get pregnant, you're going to get pregnant. If you pray with enough faith that, that your, your, the loved one who's near death will not die, they will not die. I don't think that's what Jesus is, is saying here. This is not a name it, claim it, prosperity, gospel type of thing. That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? I think what he's saying is he's tying all this together. I am king. I have all authority. If you believe in me and pray with faith according to my will and according to my authority in my name, which means you're praying for things that I desire for you, not just that your selfish ambition desires. If you pray according to my will and if it all is lining up with my purpose and plan for your life, yes, it will be granted to you. Because all things work together for the good of his people, those who he has called, and those who love him and he loves. So no, it doesn't mean every single one of your prayers will be answered. But it does mean God will, can, and will do powerful things for you and in you that you never could have asked or imagined because of his kingly authority. Whatever that might look like. And so we pray with faith. We pray asking him to do things that only are possible through Jesus doing them. And then we hold it with open hands. And we say, Lord, if it's not according to your will, help me be okay with that. But if it's according to your will, make it so. Heal us. I've done this before, call and response type thing back in the day. Jack, does God heal people? He heals people miraculously heals people. If you don't know Jack's story, go ask him afterwards. It's powerful. God heals people truly and miraculously. Not every time, but he can and he will when it's according to his will. And so all of these things come together under this theme of Jesus being our king. He's the king of all nations. He's the king over all things. He's the king with all authority. And so we can trust him to provide everything we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us as sinners. We thank you that you truly do save and deliver. You truly help those who are your people. You care about the poor. 
You care about the outcasts. You care about all nations, all economic statuses, all ethnicities. You care about them all because you are king of all nations. We thank you that you rule and reign and you're coming back to, to initiate, initiate your eternal kingdom. And we thank you that we can be a part of that through faith. <clears throat> we pray that we would believe it and that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't believe it, that they would too. And Lord, I just pray for next week, for Easter. Bring people through our doors that need to hear the gospel, that need to hear the truth of a crucified Savior for sinners, that they would believe, that we would be ready to welcome our guests with love, with hospitality, with grace, that you would build your church, not for our glory, but for your glory, and that you would bring people to saving faith in Jesus more and more. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.